Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. So excited today, Jenny. We have another guest today, but our guest was brought on by somebody who was a listener and also a guest on our show previously. Her name was Amber Leah, and she recommended that I meet Fatu. I had to hear his story. I went and took her recommendation, sought him out on Facebook. We had a conversation and she was not wrong. I think that people are going to learn a lot today, not only from his story, but from Fatu himself. He's very interesting. So I'm excited to introduce you to Fatu. I'm not going to say his last name. We're going to just let you introduce yourself because I can't I can't get it pronounced right. <laughs> no worries. Uh, my name's Fatu Matangi. And I'm from West Valley City, I guess. I born in Hawaii, grew up in West Valley City, and now I live in Harriman. That's awesome. Yep. So I'm really grateful that you were willing to come on our show. I enjoyed talking to you, and I can't wait to get into your story. We're going to do things a little bit different, and we're going to ask you first, what does resilience mean to you? So to me, resilience is being able to stick something out, having a belief in something and just pushing through no matter what, how hard something is going on in your life or even how easy it is going. I think resiliency is the ability to just push and stay who you are through problems. Oh, I love that. I do I too. And I love, Fatu, that you mentioned even if things are going easy because maybe sometimes in those easy times of life we get a little bit lazy and, and we kind of feel like maybe we're floating through when that could be a time when we need to hang on to that resilience and, and maybe always be ready for whatever it might be. Yeah. Or take the opportunity to build to get those stronger. tools, yeah. um, whether it's putting time into relationships and right. being able to build a strong network and investing in people in your circle so that when times are hard, that you have somebody that you can reach out to and call. Okay, so yeah. Fatu, I want awesome. a little bit of background about you because we were joking before we started recording that you used to singing and dancing, but not like Broadway singing and dancing. So tell us a little bit about your singing and dancing, about your culture, just maybe your life and family. Just introduce yourself to us a bit as we kind of jump into what life experiences maybe you've had that have taught you this resilience. Yeah, so I'm half Samoan, half Palangi. Um, for those that don't understand what a Palangi is, that means you're a white person. Um, my mom's <laughs> from Pennsylvania. My dad's from Samoa. They met each other at a dance somewhere here in Salt Lake City. And then before I was born, they moved back to Hawaii. 
uh, so that my dad could get a better job. And then I was born in Hawaii, and then I came here to Utah as a kid. Well, very cool. So you came in today to share an interesting story about how you lost your arm. So you only have one arm now. Take us back to, what was it, 14 years ago? Yeah, it was 14 years ago. Like It was 2008. I, I was building power lines. Um, I'd been a lineman for six or seven years. Well, I'd been in alignment for two or three years. I took an apprenticeship out for a four-year period. Worked a lot of different places. Worked in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming. Got moved to a job that was in Salt Lake City. Had a boss that had been injured a couple times, so it was kind of dangerous. And me and my coworker, Stephen, were like best friends, and we'd talk about our safety and the problems that were in the company that I worked for. And then eventually one day um, I woke up in the hospital. Okay, well, so wait a second. So as you're working on the line, you were kind of identifying, hey, this isn't really safe, what we're doing, and maybe some things that should have been done differently. I think most of us just Mm -hmm. flip our power switch and we're grateful the lights turn on. You know, this is the same conversation I had with Fatio on the phone. I'm like, you know, we take for granted the power in our house. It's the thing that we all use all the time, but it's every also single the thing day. We say to our kids, don't touch that because you'll get shocked or right. burned. We, but we, we don't never think, think risk. about the risk sure. for the men who put their lives who on the line. Who sure there's power in to, my house. Yes, exactly. And that was a big awakening to yeah. me. So yeah, tell us about that day and, and what happened on the line. So to be specific, I don't know the day exactly. When I woke up, I didn't remember it, but I do oh remember goodness. the days coming up to it. So mm-hmm. So the way that a line crew works is you have four people. You have a foreman, a lineman, a, a hot apprentice, and a cold apprentice. The hot apprentice specifically works with the uh, lineman specifically on the line, and the cold apprentice works with the foreman. And as we were working throughout those three months, there was just a lot of safety precautions that were being broken throughout the company. It was 2008, so like the economy had started to slough. Sure. Power was trying to save cash, so they started to take lower bids. And the company that I worked for came from out of state and underbid everybody. And I was on the books to get hired. So all the people hired in front of me were the people that were laid off in the first wave. And then I got hired underneath one of the people that got laid off before me. Okay, so that's an interesting fallout of that down economy that Mm -hmm. most of us probably didn't think about. And while you can appreciate a company wanting to save money and tighten the budget, you don't want them saving money and tightening the budget over safety. But nah. So as a, as a lineman, you were recognizing that. I appreciate that you said there were policies in place not being followed versus it was just no policy at all. I mean, you're always trying to be safe when you're a lineman. That's what you're taught. You're constantly thinking about the people that are getting injured on the line because it's happening all the time. In Utah... What the rate was, was you had one fatality per year. But outside of that, you had people that were losing arms and fingers and toes and legs all the time. So you were and always talking about those. And we've never heard of that. Have you ever heard of that, no. Michelle? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't hear it in the no, news. No, this is why I, yeah. I love the story because I'm like, oh my gosh, I had just a moment of, of how dangerous this how is. dangerous this is and what an appreciation that to have for the linemen the that are provide us that this power. Yeah. So you'd seen some safety violations. Yeah. So me and Steven, like we were really tight because when you work on power lines, your life is in another person's hand. And if you're a hot apprentice and a lineman, 
you're relying on each other to stay alive because 7,200 volts is a lot to take Ooh. into your body. So we were talking about it. Well, it came to a point where there were so many safety problems that were happening in the company that the company finally respected it and we had this big meeting and inside the meeting the linemen were like well you guys got to give us the proper equipment the proper tools and the the boss was like well we are giving you that and then a lineman would be like no you're not like look at this tool that blew up in our hands we lost a line that was over Bangadar highway and it dropped across the street and almost burnt the cars that were on the (gasps) ground oh my gosh so it was like you're telling all the people about all the problems that you see, but the company wasn't listening. Or if they were listening, they weren't supplying the goods to get you to be safe on the job. So right. so me and Steve were constantly talking about safety. I actually told him I was going to quit and go be a teacher, but I was making too much money to walk away is what I think happened with that. So you you don't remember what happened the day of your accident. Is there any kind of work report that tells you more or less? I don't know a lot about electrical work. So when you say you were working on this job for three months and working on the lines, are these all overhead power lines like I would be accustomed to seeing? Is this stuff that's more in the ground under the green box in front of my house? Maybe explain what the nature of that particular project you were doing work on. So I was young. I was 26 years old and really healthy. So I was typically... Backyard, overhead jobs, distribution, 7,200 volts, climbing poles rather than being in a bucket. And the job specifically was in a backyard pole. So when I got electrocuted, um, Stephen tried to rescue me. He wrapped up the line that hit me. And then when he climbed up, he got hit. Um, But he got hit in a different area. Um, He died on the line. And then... um, the power company came, and they didn't know how to shut it off. So it took an hour for them to get me off. Specifically, like, for me, because I had a lawsuit, I didn't get to review everything that happened on the job. But I did get to read the newspaper reports, which the nurses did not want me to read in the hospital. And you have no memory of it at all? No, I don't. Oh, my god! I just have theoretics. <laughs> I am I am so sorry to hear that Stephen died. I... I was up on the pole, so I laid over on the transformer that was feeding the house, and then uh, it hit us three times. It it wasn't supposed to. They're supposed to stop at one. There's a thing called a one shot that you're supposed to take. Like automatically it should stop, or so the foreman the foreman's supposed to tell them that we want a one shot. A one shot means if it hits something, it's going to turn off. But if it doesn't have a one shot, then it's going to hit whatever it is three times. First time is just to burn it off. The second time it hits harder so that it really burns whatever's off on it, like a fallen limb from a tree. So it's supposed to do that. I'm I'm trying to, I mean, this is all 101 for me. So it would have the capacity to burn a a broken tree branch or something. You want it to do that so it doesn't interrupt power. You don't want it to burn a a human, a, a worker, a person. Yeah, and that's why you take a one shot. Okay. The one shot's to protect whoever's on the line. So that's the contact save is the made, it immediately stops. Totally. But the one that you were with had the three shots. It had the three shots. Oh. So it hit me, went through this left arm, and then it jumped out of this right arm, hit me again through my left knee, and then came out of my right knee. And then the third time it hit Steven, and then it shut off. But nobody knew it was shut off. So, so like when the, the fireman, foreman, yeah, the foreman was trying to figure out how to shut it off. 
by the time it hits, it's so fast. With yeah, with three phase reclosure, like with the, the way electricity travels, it's instant. Mm-hmm. It's like you you see a person get hit and then hit and then another one get hit. It's so I'm super. So fast. you said you got hit on your left arm and it traveled through your right arm and it's your right arm that you lost. Yeah, you got hit on your left leg. It traveled out your right leg. Both of your legs were okay. Nah. Or not. I guess they're both part <laughs> so of your body still, but not necessarily you. okay. I have fourth degree burns oh. um, on my body. So typically when you go to the burn unit, the deepest burn is third degree. And I had fourth degree because they were down to my bone. And then with electricity, what happens is it doesn't burn from the outside in like a gas fire would. Instead, it burns from the inside out like a microwave. So... The doctors, when they pulled me in, saw that my bone was burnt, and then they just started removing all the flesh that was covering the bone, and then it burnt for a couple days, and then they'd they'd remove skin. They'd remove stuff every day. And I wasn't awake. I was knocked out, so... How good, long? Nice thing for me, I guess. How, how, yeah, yeah. how long were you knocked out, can I ask? I was knocked out for two weeks. Oh, my goodness. I, this, so part of me is just appalled that this happens and that you say somebody dies every year and there's injuries all the time. And I've never in my life heard of this. I think I live in this world that feels like we have modern technology. And so surely you would have safety suits and safety equipment. And I don't know, somehow I magically think you can touch the power line to fix it from my house without hurting yourself. And so to hear all this is alarming, but also to hear... It's almost like a science lesson mm-hmm. when you describe it as a <laughs> microwave. No, 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 no. This is helpful. I, <laughs> no, I, I think it's good. For it, I think it's good for hear. all of us to hear. You know, we think of a microwave and how that works. Most of us do when we think of burns. Think of it starting from the outer layer of skin in, and how far might that burn go? Mm-hmm. We don't think of the fact that the bone might be what's burning from the inside out. That's horrific, and there's no way to stop it. I mean, once that electricity had. had shot through your body. There's no medical something to say, stop burning for two days. It just continues to burn. Yeah. No, it's it's just, you just suffer. Uh, And for me, it's, it's nice because you have modern medicine. So they knocked me out. So two weeks I'm knocked out and I, I don't really feel anything. My wife is coming and visiting me and originally, so we got married on August 31st and I got burnt on August 28th. Oh my so, goodness! Like happy anniversary. The first year, your, your one year anniversary, or what? No, nah, this many is years? 2008. We got married in 2002. Six years. So, so six right, year anniversary. Right the anib- and then you're in the three hospital. Three days before she, when she came, she actually, her uncle called her and was like, "Hey, we saw that somebody got burned on the power line. Was that Fatu?" And then she was like, "Where is it at?" They said Murray. Um. And she was like, well, he doesn't work in Murray because Murray's a, Murray's a city power. They're not contractors like I was. So she thought I was good. And then she took a shower and then the phone rang and it was f- like caller ID came on and it loaded it up with like a bunch of U of U burn uh, floor doctor calling and when she got out, she knew it was me because she oh saw the color ID and that it was the hospital. Mm. So, Ugh. but she initially she thought it was like, oh, Fatu gets hurt. It's probably just a little burn. We'll still go on our anniversary thing. And then when she got to the hospital, it was like an eye-opening event. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, I can we're going to take a break we for a minute to. and kind of process this. And when we come back, have us tell you um, what happens when you woke up and where it goes from there. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we are back trying to process um, what happens next. If you're in this medically induced coma for two weeks, you're clearly not waking up and going home the same day. So when I wake up, I ask the same question every time because I was on a ventilator and I was trying to rip it off my face. And then eventually I got to a point where they took the ventilator off and I could finally speak because people would come visit. And I guess my wife said that I would respond like visually. But when they took the ventilator off, I just asked where Steven was. Um, over and over. Like, all day long. And every time I fell asleep, I'd forget what happened. So when I woke up, I asked it again. And then every time my wife told me that Steven passed away on the line, I just cried a lot. Oh, I can't even imagine. This is somebody that you trusted your life with. He's up there trying to help you. And I can't imagine it. And I can hear, I mean, it's been 14 years and I can see and I can hear the grief in your voice. It's still, and you do have your wife sitting next to you and she's crying as well. I mean, this has been a real life changing event. For sure. Yeah. And and were you really close with Stephen? Like outside of work? No, like but, I, I mean, you work with somebody every day. You're, I, yeah. I was just going to say, like, the bonding that happens on the line crew is a lot like the bonding that happens inside the military where you just are brothers because you know that your life's in their hands. He met my wife because I made my boss take a safety meeting because he got to the point where I was just sick of it. So I made us have like this safety breakfast and I invited my wife and my like, I don't know, I think he was 12 months old kid. Oh, wow. So Stephen met him and so did my cold apprentice. We, we all met. And the actually the interesting thing is the boss didn't even come into the safety meeting. He stayed in the truck. Ugh. Oh my goodness. So, so just, can I ask just, your wife? What was that like when you... Well, first of all, let's introduce... Oh, sorry, let's introduce... I'm sorry. Go ahead and introduce yourself, if you will. Then I'd love to ask a couple questions. Okay. My name is Shalise Matani. Okay. Hi, Shalise. Thank you for joining us. This is hard. Yes. And we appreciate both of you being willing to share with us something that most of us... it's It's a part of life none of us know exists. What was that like getting the phone call and the first time that you saw him in the hospital, in the in the burn centers? So uh, the first time of ever hearing about this was my uncle that called. I had just worked out, me and my son, and got home, and I was feeding him, and I got a phone call. And previously to that phone call, it was lunchtime, and I usually call, or he calls me. 
and I noticed he didn't call, so I was calling and um, didn't pick up and, you know, maybe called like three or four times and nothing. And and then I get a phone call from uh, my uncle who said he heard on the radio that there was a accident in Murray, that there is a lineman that was up on the pole. And he asked me if that could have been Fatu or if Fatu heard anything about that. And I said, you know, he doesn't work over in the Murray area because they have their own power company. And so Utah Power contractors don't go over there. But he's like, it's probably not him. It's fine. Got off the phone, but it, something didn't feel right at that time. So I just kept calling and calling and nothing. And and I just got this feeling that I need to take a shower. So I took a shower. And as soon as I got out, the phone rang again. And it, it said U of U Hospital on it. And um, I answered the phone and they just said, they can't give you much information. They just said, you know, we've admitted your husband. We need you to come down. We need, it'd be better if you didn't drive, if somebody brought you. And we can explain more when you get here. They did say that he has been in an accident, but that's all that they could say. So I uh, called my father, whose company is just down the street from where we lived, and he picked up me and my son, and we went to the U of U hospital. And as they were explaining to me in the waiting room of the ER, they were just saying, you know, we don't know how bad this is. He's been burned. And they showed, you know, like pictures of like he's on his arms and in his legs. And with these kind of things, you don't know how bad it is. Because, like you said, you burn from, the inside, from the inside it oh. out. So so you have to wait to eat. And there's still the residual heat there. So he's still yes, literally yes. Burning. He's burning. And so I didn't get to see him for a while. And I don't, I believe I didn't get to see him until like nighttime. Really? Um, and that must have been terrible. Yeah. They warned me that he may look different. So the first time I went in. He was wrapped all around except for his head. And he, I mean, he looked swollen. I mean, he could tell, I don't know, there was burns on his face. But yeah, he was bandaged from neck down all the way oh down. Gosh. I just remember they had to unwrap him every day. So the first night, I stayed there the first night. And... um they said we have to undress him every day because we need to see the damage because he as it continues as it continues to burn. So they said you may not want to be here for this, and I said no, I want to be here for this. So they would unwrap him. I mean, and it was you could see you could see all the way through muscle, through fat, through everything. And so they would point out to me this is good where it was yellow. But you could tell where it was burned because it was black. So what they would have to do is they would have to take him back to the operating room and shave that off. And then they would wrap him back up and and then come back tomorrow and see if anything else was black. 
So they continued this, and that's when he, like when he said he was in a coma, they had to induce him because he would try to rip out sure. tubes and try to undress himself. So when when they put him into that medically induced coma, did you have any idea how long he would need to be in the coma? Did they say okay, it's going to be two weeks, or was it just every day? It was agony, every day, not they knowing had to wait, how long. Yes, to see how. And long. in those moments, every hour feels like a hundred years. Oh yes. Oh my yes. goodness, this is this is terrible. At what point do they decide to take the arm? We were probably there about say a month. Before they wow. Can I ask how long you were there entirely? We know you were comatose that first couple of weeks. How long was the stay? Two months. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a month in, Patu, what was your reaction? What's the response when they tell you that they can't save your arm? So I'm going to rewind back. Sorry, we have two yeah, narratives do. going on now. Yeah. <laughs> it's two different stories. Yeah, always it, is it really sure. is. Yeah. So, so when I woke up, I didn't think I was going to have that arm anyway because I couldn't move it. This little Asian lady would come in and she had this needle and she'd be like, do you want me to poke this? And I was like, poke my arm. And she's like, I want to see if you can feel. And then she'd shove it in and I'd watch it hit the bone. And I'm like, that thing ain't coming back. Ugh. Um, and then she'd ask me to move it, and I couldn't move it. And then for three days, she'd come back and forth and be like, can you feel anything? And I'm like, I can't feel anything. So by the time Shalise came in to tell me that I was going to lose my arm, she was more wrecked than I was. I was kind of like, I just want to get out of this hospital. It's like yeah. prison, <laughs> being <laughs> locked in a prison. And it's awesome because people take care of you, but I'm not the kind of person that likes the indoors. That's kind of why I was a lineman anyway. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when Imagine, she, are you in a lot of pain or heavily medicated to not be in a lot of pain? You're so high. You're you're medicated like no other. So I couldn't feel any, like... You're kind of out of your body. I had to learn to rewalk like six or seven times because every time they take you into Oof. a surgery, you're out for several days and then you forget how to walk. And the initial reason you can't remember how to walk is the first two weeks that you're out. So it's like every time they knock you out, all of a sudden you haven't had enough time on your feet to remember what it's like to be on your feet. So you have to retrain yourself over and over. I'm shocked your legs were okay where your arm wasn't. Well, they weren't okay. Well, I mean, I guess that they were safe. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking if you're saying the bone is burning... From the inside out, it, do you have, like like today, all these years later, do you have full feeling and mobility in both legs? No. No. Okay. No, I, the the patches that I have on my knees are different, and they don't have any sensation. The sensation's different. Like, people can lean on my knees, and I won't. And I, I'll just feel pressure. I won't actually feel how much pressure. And you can you can walk, run. But I can walk, run, and okay. snowboard really well. Oh, good! Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I do stuff. <laughs> A lot of stuff. So, so they tell you they're going to take the arm. They did they amputate the arm during that two month stay, or was that later down? During the, the stay, so Shalise comes in and she's like, "You're going to lose your arm." She's weeping, obviously, and I'm just kind of like. You kind of like hold her and fake weep as well, or something like. Like I don't remember exactly specifically what happened, but. And then they just take you back. There are so many times where I would knock out because loss of blood or something. To blend all the surgeries together is often what happens inside your mind. Like, for instance, one time I was learning to walk and I had my arm that was falling off of my body and they taped it to my body. And I was using the walker to get 
15 steps because I wanted to get out of the hospital and the goal was to get to the door. So I'm getting to my goal and then when I get back, the nurses are concerned because they're like, Fatu, you don't seem energetic. And I'm like, well, I just walked down the hall and that's freaking hard. Yeah, that took all the energy I have. Yeah. And then they're like, no, you, you just don't seem right. And they pull the blankets and the sheets off of me and blood shoots across <gasps> the room and Shalise screams. And then I'm like, well, maybe this will be the day that I die. <laughs> and like the people jump on top of you and they apply direct pressure and then they wrap you. And, and this then, was from the arm, the right arm? Yeah. So they pushed me to the the basement, did emergency surgery. But when I woke up, the arm was still there. Right? Really? Like, they just cauterized the thing because they're trying their so hardest. They were hopeful it could stay. They're so hopeful. Yeah. Like a lot of a lot <laughs> the of the way you said that, I was like, they like, were dude, so just, hopeful. Just and I was the just arm thinking, off and let me take go. Take the home. arm off and let me go. That's well. That's like that's <laughs> well, my perspective. Know, like, what's your what's your mind game at this point? Because you know, here we are. We're talking about resilience. And you've just mentioned that being hospitalized in and out of consciousness, in and out of your own body, that's torture. How did both of you, and then watching him is also torture. I'd love to know, how did both of you, what resilience tools or just what tools in general did you have to not absolutely lose your mind during that time? Because I think that psychological part would parallel the physical agony of, I'm really just going to lose it here, people. So to me, a lot of resilience for me that was in the hospital was I live for those one moment, that one moment that makes me feel alive. So that moment can happen like 5,000 times a day as long as I'm present in the moment. And it happened all the time when I had visitors, like my cousins would come and they think you're going to die, but but they don't want to tell you. So you just sit there and you just absorb. Like for me, it was like absorbing their energy. Like it's okay. I can do this. They're here. They love me. I can love myself. I can care. Um, and then, and then you have the hard parts that you ripple through. Like they have this thing called the tank room where they roll you in and they debrief all your scars and rip all the skin off and blood's running down the drain and you're hurting. But you have a nurse, so you could talk to the nurse, and I could look at my arm and be like, yo, where'd my bicep go? My wife's not going to think I'm sexy anymore. <laughs> like, to you me, joking a, a, is I like... I say that sense of humor mm-hmm. is admirable. I, I don't know that I would have that. The joking to me was one of the things that made me feel normal, because I grew up in, a, in an atmosphere that was hard. My whole family, we grew up in child abuse. And I think one of the things that I learned when I was a kid and my entire family was how to laugh pain off. And the reason we could laugh pain off was because we'd been through something that we didn't think we'd survive through. So I don't wow. know if that helps or no, not. No, that, that to me is, <laughs> that's remarkable that you could have that kind of resilience. It, what, what helped you watching him? I mean, I can't imagine the difficulty of... So when you're put in that kind of situation, you are so set on getting him better because you have a child that needs his dad. You just try to do everything you can. In the hospital, I felt like I was just like, go, go, go. I got to get him better because at that time he didn't see his son until almost until he was out of the hospital. I wanted him better so that our son could come and visit him. And so um, it was my son that got us through all of this, just thinking about if we just get him better and get him home, it will just be so much better. 
I love that beautiful family connection. The both, sorry, both of you mentioned the, the thought of this son that you share together, making you fight for him and him fight for his own life, but then also the cousins and the other family that came and gave you confidence in yourself and love in yourself to say, okay, we can do this, even though horrible and awful. That's That's beautiful. Yeah. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We're back. What a beautiful story. I mean, it's a tragedy for sure, but a beautiful story. And for those of you not sitting in this room with us today, you can see the love between these two. And they have endured some really hard things. And um, it sounds like, Fatu, your life did not start out easy and that perhaps resilience was brought for you out of those things. And you've learned how to build a great life. I love what you said about, I could love myself. I could talk to the nurse. I could love my cousins. I could love my wife. Looking for even the smallest thing when all you can do is really lay in bed and be uncomfortable, be in pain, and just want to leave this prison that is the hospital bed. It's a beautiful story of resiliency. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing about resilience is finding the ability to extend energy. Um, And typically, I don't think I've figured that out completely until I was in the hospital because I didn't realize how many people would give me their energy. When I was in my, my dad's circumstance when I was a child and getting abused and beat and hit, um, it was a lot of internal energy it was me storing my own energy and like harnessing it and taking the pain and then like the only time I could express it was when I was with my siblings and we could laugh about it that we survived but when I was in the hospital I could see how other people's resilience can extend into me and then I can explode it through humor or make mm-hmm. some make people laugh like the last thing i want people to do when i'm in the hospital and everybody's looking at me going is he going to make it tomorrow is to cry i want them right. to laugh mm-hmm. um because if you go to my funeral make sure you tell a joke about me because my life's a freaking oh joke gosh. like <laughs> i don't want people to go to my funeral and just weep their heads off because life is amazing it's beautiful and it's spontaneous And it happens every minute if you live it every minute. So it's kind of like resilience is the ability to be who you are as much as you can. And you're not going to be it all the freaking time because that's Mm -hmm. impossible. Absolutely. But the more that you can tap the moment and be in the moment, then the more happy you will be and the people around you. Okay, I'm loving this so much. Like I love what you said earlier that you could... You could find the moment worth living for, and that moment might come 5,000 separate times a day when you're present and in that moment and able to really just – I mean, you just said life, life's amazing, life's beautiful, life's wonderful, and you've gone through this horrible, awful tragedy that really should have been avoided had you know, the company – I'm sure that's a whole other issue of how did that happen. Can you tell us – that was 14 years ago. You came home. You came home, I'm sure, with all kinds of batters and bruises, but no right arm. 
a beautiful young son, a wife that's been by your side. I know there's not time to go through 14 years of the journey, but maybe give us a few takeaways of of what life has been like now adapting to having one arm and not two, and and I'm sure the ongoing effects of this accident even a decade and a half later. Yeah, so it's really hard when you get home. Like, it sounds super easy with me just giving the anecdotal answer like five seconds ago, but it's way harder than you expect. To me, one of the hardest things was getting over the grief of losing Stephen. Um, when I was in the hospital, he was buried, and I couldn't go to his funeral. And his dad came and visited me, and he was a lineman. And I was amazed that he came and visited me. Because for linemen, a lot of times when something happens, we blame ourselves. We're like, it's all our fault. And to have another lineman supporting me and showing up really helped. So the grief part was first. After going through the grief, I had to find something that would occupy my time and bring me happiness. And for me, it was snowboarding. I found this guy that his name is Travis. He's got these big dreadlocks and he saw me snowboarding one day and I'd volunteered to work with disabled people to teach them how to snowboard. And when he saw me riding on the hill, he was like, you should try to make it on the Paralympic team. They're like barely opening up this sport. And he went and rode with me and real fun riding with this guy because typically I would try to ditch people that were teaching me stuff and he would stay with me and I'm cruising down a black. He's cruising down a black. He's looking at me and he's like, yo, bro, this is the sickest thing ever. And I'm like, this is my guy. Like, this is my people. And he invited me to go up to Canada and I went and I raced and I placed like 13th out of 60 in the world. Oh my gosh, that's and then, amazing. Yeah, and then he was just like, just keep at doing, just keep doing it. And I was like, I got to because this is something that gives me something to compete against and to also like put goals up. And this right. is hard for my wife because we have one kid at the time and we had another one that we didn't think would happen because the doctors were like, you probably can't have kids. And he came and I'm racing snowboards and Shalise is at home with all these kids and dirty diapers and I can win an event and go home and be like, check it out. I represent it. And she's just like, change the diapers now. Like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Hey, I totally You're gone that. all yeah. day long. And, and I'm just like, aren't you proud of me? And she's just like, yeah. Change the change diapers. The diaper. like, <laughs> I get you, girl. Do that. So, so it's like a really interesting aspect to be married and then try to like pursue an athletic goal. But for me, it's a lot of recovery for me was just finding things that made sense that you could push towards. So for instance, me and my kid, if I'm with him and I'm present, I'm focused on everything he's doing. But if I'm not present, then I don't really care and I'd rather be snowboarding. So you have to make that shift inside your perception to focus on what matters. Yeah. That goes back to your, you know, finding joy or or being present in the the 5,000 times a day, right? It's really learning about mindfulness, about being able to be present and be aware of what's going on around you and just be in the moment and live the moment. That is, I, I, I wish that we taught that in schools, like <laughs> elementary school from the very and beginning. And like nonstop every year. Yeah, because yes, it should be part right. of curriculum. It should be like an exercise. You know, when I went to school, we said a prayer and a pledge of allegiance every day. It'd be really nice if they would do like some breathing moment. and yeah. a mindful moment every day for our kids because they're really suffering and oh. they don't really know how to get present. 
Totally. So I'm I'm a I substitute teach school and I finished a degree in English literature later in my life. Um, but I teach kids and and like what you said, when you can when you can present the facts in a way that's funny and you can engage kids and get them to think the same way you think, then everything goes better. And I'm not a professional teacher, but the kids like me a lot of times when I bet I, they do. When I, I visit and typically I don't know if I'm a good teacher, but I'll say things like, hey, guys, you might not think this is super important. Like, it's really boring to come to school and be inside this box for eight hours. But the way that it can affect your future is pretty important. And I understand. You you guys don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Like, nobody wants to be at school. But we can do stuff. Like, we can talk about things and we can figure things out. And if it's applicable to the future and it teaches you something then you can use it in your life and actually make money, which some of you may want, some of you may not want, but you got to make that decision when you're done. Right. And currently when we're in class, you guys don't have decisions. You got to do what I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you bring up a good point. In addition to losing your friend and coworker, losing your right arm, all kinds of damage to your own body and the psychological difficulties in in your whole family and world going forward, I imagine you didn't go back to work as a lineman. So have you, and you mentioned you maybe were going to be a teacher, you substitute teach. Did you choose a different career? What's, how do you now provide for your family where that was your, like you said, you were making good money and that's kind of what kept you from leaving it, even though you knew it was dangerous. Um, Just the practical side of me is saying, how do you pay the bills now? I'm sure you're not climbing up the pole anymore. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, so... For two years, I raced the circuit, and that gave me some money. We had workers' comp that gave us like a quarter of what I made before, so mm. that was hard. We were really good at saving before I got injured, and I was making really good money for the two years that I was a lineman. So we had a stash, and we kind of just had to like disperse of it so that sure. we could get onto WIC and things like that, so mm-hmm. we could actually get food on the table. And then after two years, I was in college um, going into psychology. And as I was doing that, the person that died, his the dad called me and he was like, they killed another 18-year-old on the power lines. We need to sue the company that you work for. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. Like, if, if you're for it, then I'll go for it. So we sued and then we had a lawsuit. And in the middle of all this, because you got like snowboarding going, you got school, college going, you got mm-hmm. my wife with kids. There's a lot of stuff no that you're kidding. just trying to balance. And in the middle of all that, my oldest brother got injured building a power line as well oh. in Colorado and he lost both hands. So I had to drop out of college the first time so I could go help my brother. And it was a favor because I hated college at first. <laughs> like, um, actually, I'm out of here. So it was nice. So I went over there and I knew he'd. Like, that's the hard thing. When your brother's in the same situation as you, just trying to go and help him, I was trying to help him by giving him everything I didn't get. Like, I I don't think people were honest with me enough when I was in the hospital. I walk into my brother and I see he's going to lose his hands, and I'm like, bro, you, you might lose those hands. Get ready. Mm-hmm. And he's like, nah, I'm not going to lose these. And he's he can open them, but like... Four of them are opening at the same time. He can't control independent fingers. And I'm like, just prepare yourself. And and the thing about my brother that's nice is he's been through what I've been through, our childhood. Mm-hmm. So I can push him. 
he can push me as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm a pusher, and he's a joker too. So I can be like, after he loses his hands, hey, bro, if there's anything that you need, just tell me. And I'm inside of the hospital visiting him, and he's like, okay, well, something is itchy really hard right now. Can you scratch it? And it's his nether region, right? Yeah. And I, I, got a, I get like a wrench in the room, and I go over there and kind of try to scratch it, and he's like, dude, don't, bro. Like, just scratch. Don't do anything else. And it's kind of like that brotherly nature that I had when I was a lineman anyway, where you could just be really honest and you, you can hope the best for them, but you know they have to dig in and find yeah. that as well. And he had it. like, So I didn't have to worry if he'd do it. Because to me, the hardest thing is with my life and with teaching students and stuff, you wonder if you're sinking in. Am I going to actually affect this person? And are they actually going to... like? I'm not going to change them. I'm going to influence them. But can I get it to, can I sink it in so that they actually build their own, Mm -hmm. their own energy, their own resilience, Mm -hmm. their own capacity to look at something, shift it, make it funny, and then laugh about it and then move on. And my, my brother had that, um, him and I actually visit a lot of burn survivors at camps We've met people that don't have faces, don't have arms, don't have legs. And we laugh about not having a face or not having an arm or me throwing my son's bottle because I can't spin the lid on um, and milk goes flying everywhere. And my wife hates me for this, but this feels great right now because it feels justified. So it's kind of like when you meet those people who are in that circumstance and you can make them laugh just to find relief um it's refreshing yeah i I imagine it is i love hearing you you keep referring to energy and you know we are in these bodies our bodies all look different they all have different capacities we're all born that way even with two arms and two legs but um we're really not human beings we're spiritual beings and we are beings of energy and light. And I love that you have brought out several times in your talk today about the value of sharing that energy, that connectedness, and seeing the higher good in somebody or drawing it out of them or getting them to even see their value and worth. We all have a unique reason for being here. There's no accidents. We're all here at this time. And we all need to be doing our best to use our creative genius to share our gifts with the world. Sometimes we don't understand what those are, and it may be hard in finding them, but there's, it's a great journey, right? It's a great journey to find it. So I'm, I'm inspired, and I really appreciate th- those thoughts on energy. So currently I'm writing a book. Oh, good. Um, I'm writing oh, a book. Oh, I can't wait to read yeah, it. Yeah, I, I can't wait either. Yeah. Right. I'm oh, writing a sure, book too and it's me. not easy. Maybe you can be my editor. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, so it's it's a memoir and it's cuz to me it didn't make sense just to write a biography of what right. you go through. Having a memoir gives you kind of where you're gathering that power. So it talks about my childhood and stuff, but yeah. Actually when I got into school, I switched from psychology to liter- English literature studies so that I could learn how to write better. And then when I got in my last year, 
one of my professors was like, I'm going to make a class for you because she read my whole manuscript and she was like, this is great. We're going to use this as material for the class so that the kids can learn how to write. So how long do we have to wait for the book? Where, do you have any idea? I'm just asking. Like, is question. it? <laughs> if you've got a manuscript. That's a start. Yeah, no, I. Agree. You'll let us know, though, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to finish somewhere in a year. So okay. I already wrote the first manuscript was 300 pages, and I was right. trying to narrow the script down. Sure. But it seems but that a lot it's to the hard story. to stop. Well, I think we all look forward to reading. <laughs> uh, it, it, well, well, leave it long. Me on Facebook yeah. or Instagram. Well, okay, where do we find you on Facebook? So Facebook is just my first and last name. F-A-T-U-M-A-T-A-G-I. <laughs> as long as you have friends on there and I know that you're not a bot, then I'll like you. I'll be your friend. Instagram, it's one-armed dude. No space. That's it. Just one-armed dude. And that's pretty much and it. And are you still snowboarding? Oh, for sure. Okay, good. That's okay, like good. my life. Well, this this has been incredible. And you, um, it's interesting, you know, we focused in on one story of your life and, and the accident and everything that fell out from that. But you've lived enough of life that you've exercised resilience for a long time. And that's something that I think can benefit so many of us, those lessons you've learned and shared. And, and like Michelle said, the energy, the connection to people, the, the sense of humor in the midst of everything awful. And I'm totally with your wife because I can see her being frustrated as the milk flies across the wall. And yet for you to be able to have that, you know, in the moment and just be able to say, hey, we've, we, we've got to still be able to laugh. I think there's so much about resilience you've shared with us. I think this is an episode I will listen to many times and, and take out pieces of. So thank you for sharing Same. so much of your heart and your story. Thank you both. And best wishes with, with your children, with your family, with your snowboarding. And we're really excited about the book. So thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. You bet. It's been another amazing episode here of Relentlessly Resilient. We're thankful to all of our listeners for listening. We hope that you'll find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like, a rating, and a review. Shout out to our producer, Kellyanne Halverson. And if you're listening and have a story you're willing to share, we would love to bring you in studio or join us remotely if necessary. Find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient on Facebook or Relentlessly Resilient Podcast on Instagram or send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.